Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. sort of our second uh, piece in the evolution of behavior. Um, last time we talked about the historical pathways, if you want to call it, put that in quotes because it seems to have a name, but the behavior or any trait you take. So we talked about the end of flies and, and, and such. Right? And the history of flying and all that. So it's basically the question is here, how do we get from one form to another? And that form can be behavior. That form can be a physical trait. And as I was just talking before we started, when foxes may have turned into, into dogs, they may have gone in there. <coughs> you also have to look at, to get the whole story, you have to look at the fitness consequences or the adaptive value of the behavior. We can only call something adaptation if it increases fitness. So does something increase fitness? Some behavior. Or some other characteristic, but we'll talk about behavior today, of course. So like I said, for it to be an adaptation, we have to be increasing fitness. And obviously, as I noted last time, these are intimately related ideas. Where something came from, and how it got there, and its fitness consequences for the Yeah, Typically, something won't show up and be, and stay around in a population unless it has positive fitness consequences. Or it conceivably could if it was neutral, I guess. If it's got negative fitness consequences, it's going to go away. Now, one of the things you have to keep in mind, and I'll talk about this at the end of the lecture today, is that everything doesn't have to be an adaptation. Something could, in fact, have been an adaptation for an older environment. You have to realize everything is an adaptation for what happened before, not for now. Right? Because evolution only acted... I mean, it's acting all the time, but what exists now was an adaptation from before, it was an adaptation at all. This is where, for example, you can look at human behavior and talk about how things are adaptations, yet they may have negative fitness consequences today. You can think of human behavior like aggression. So let's think of something like a male, because males are, tend to be on average more aggressive than females. The fitness consequences of being aggressive and in killing other males were, was positive. Right? If Jordan and I are competing for the females and Jordan kills me, he gets the females. Jordan wins. He's going to the guy in the room, so, and we're not competing for you guys. Please don't take that the wrong way. Um, he was just going the guy in the room. However, today, what would happen? Well, it wouldn't help his fitness at all because he'd go to jail. Right? So nowadays it doesn't help us, but it's an adaptation for up to, oh, I don't know, a couple of hundred years ago. It worked just fine. Or maybe even a couple of thousand years ago, let's say. 
Or you can think about our human stress reactions, the fight or flight response. While it is exceedingly useful in modern Western society, it's not horribly useful at all. Very rarely are we in a situation where we have to fight or run away. It happens, but it's pretty rare. For the most part, in fact, it's negative. It leads to things like heart attacks and blood pressure problems, etc. But on the savannah of Africa 200,000 years ago, when you saw a saber-toothed tiger pumping a little extra adrenaline and ignoring your immune system for the next 10 minutes made a great deal of sense. It doesn't make any sense when you're waiting behind someone who's trying to, you know, who doesn't know how to use a bank machine. And you get all stressed out. So you've got to realize that it's always uh, an adaptation from the past. It may still be one, but just because something has a negative consequence today and we can sit there and look at it and say that's obviously negative, it still may be an adaptation. Okay? Because when it showed up, it had positive fitness consequences. So, there's a definition. Adaptation is a heritable trait that either spread because of natural selection or has been maintained by selection to the present. And if it spreads by natural selection, it must have positive fitness consequences. Or, is currently spreading relative to, uh, to alternative traits due to selection. No, it's always just due to selection. Something can have fitness consequences and not be selected for. Right? No, it's natural selection, too, not artificial selection. So if we're breeding animals and it's increasing fitness because we're wanting to make cows that make more milk. So we breed a female that gives a lot of milk with a male of a mother that gave a lot of milk, and we're doing the selecting, that's not an adaptation. Even though it's certainly affecting fitness consequences, we're just doing, we're doing the artificial selection in that case. Or you can think about a lot of sort of human things that are called memes that aren't genetic-based that increase fitness for very brief periods of time in history. Okay, so you might think of something like being uh, wearing fashionable clothes would increase your fitness. Okay, that's probably not been selected for directly. That's that's a, a cultural thing or a meme, as Richard Dawkins calls it. And now we've turned meme into something where someone watches a YouTube video. But all right. The nice thing with the definition is it allows us to figure out if something is a definite, is an adaptation. Does it increase fitness? That's our key question. It's so important that I put two question marks. I don't know why I did that. <coughs> so if something increases fitness, it might be an adaptation. Which sounds like a vaguely like a Jeff Fox movie bit. That increases fitness, it might be an adaptation. Shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> becoming famous for one bit, and that's all you do? And I have no problem with the guy, it's more power to him, what the hell? So you've got to look at the costs and the benefits. Okay? You always have to look at the costs and the benefits, because every behavior is going to have a cost and a benefit. 
That cost and benefit may be zero, by the way, but it's, we can always look at the costs and benefits. Okay? And as I said here, not all trades are adaptations, as I was saying before. The conditions that the trade evolved in may not exist today. And in fact, when you look at a lot of human behavior, a lot of human behavior, the conditions that the trades evolved in are completely ridiculous today. Like, completely different. So, in fact, sometimes something could be maladaptive, or the side effect may be maladaptive. The idea of stress from the fight or flight response is clearly an example. Look at what we eat. Right? We love sugar. Now, we need sugar to live. Our brain needs glucose. Our body needs glucose during the ATP so our cells work. So we need glucose. So we love glucose. We love sugar. We love anything sweet. Now, eating sugar is actually good for you. Eating it in industrial quantities is bad for you. Right? And you think about complex carbohydrates, which are basically sugars that are all chained together, right? We love carbohydrates. We love bread, we love pasta and rice and all these great things. Yeah, I mean, those things really weren't around a whole lot in the, uh, in the savannah of Africa. So when we got them, it was like, great, oh, great. Evolution's like, take that, complex carbohydrates. We can break that down into individual sugars. Awesome. Now, here's an the side effect. You know, eating a lot of carbohydrates, it seems, is actually going to make you really, really fat. Right? Or, you can think about also our love of fat. That's good for you. Right? But not in industrial quantities. So we, we might like things like trans fats, which are horrible for you. They kill you. But they taste delicious. Right? Or you think about, you know, nature's perfect food, icing. It's fat and sugar. It's, it's, it's nature's perfect food. Except that it'll kill you. <coughs> so you can get you can look and say, our love of sugar is an adaptation. I think I don't I know there's data on this, but it's pretty damn clear that it would have increased fitness in what's called the EEA, the Era of Evolutionary Adaptation, back when we were built, when the humans were built. Um, it, it's got a lot of negative side effects now. We can also maladaptive expression of some adaptive trait. So, it's adaptive in one uh, situation to, to behave in a certain way, but in another situation, that's maladaptive. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah, it's funny. I had four wisdom teeth, they're just falling. So I don't even understand what they're doing. Um, I don't know, though. I mean, they're sort of decidual, aren't they? I mean, like, we don't really need them anymore. I, but what were they for? Because you can get along fine with that wisdom teeth. So like an appendix, you know, like it's there, it doesn't do anything positive, the only thing you can do is something negative. Um, I'm thinking here more, if you want to use a human example, of something like sickle cell anemia. The trait itself, 
uh, having sickle cells is, is now adapted. Having both recessive genes for sickle cells, you end up with sickle-shaped red blood cells, and you that up totally. However, if you have the intermediate form, which is kind of a, a mouse-shaped red blood cell, you end up being um, resistant to malaria. And this is why sickle cell anemia only shows up in black people. Right? Evolutionarily, because malaria is a problem in Africa. Yeah. What if, uh, what if you white born in Africa, there weren't white people in Africa until about seven, six hundred years ago? No, because evolution can't work that And also, you gotta understand that getting two sets of the sickle cell gene will kill you. Right? And that's the maladaptive expression of the adaptive trait. In fact, it's adapted in a very specific circumstance. That's if there's a lot of malaria. It's still not as good as having regular blood cells if there's no malaria. But if there's malaria, having those weirdly shaped blood cells with one normal allele and one sickle cell allele actually helps fight malaria. It doesn't help it nearly as well as you know, medication does. But it wasn't medication in 150,000 years ago, much less 200 years ago. Yeah. So we can think of stuff like that that we have a maladaptive expression of adaptive trait. We can think about something like aggression. It is actually probably somewhat adaptive to be aggressive. Right? Because in certain circumstances, <coughs> if you're a male of any species, because typically males are more aggressive than females, it's going to be aggressive to a point. You keep other males away from your territory. Or, and please don't take this the wrong way, from your females. Right? That's good. Now, if something triggers you to be aggressive for the wrong reasons and you end up getting hurt, that's that. So again, you have a maladaptive expression of what is, in fact, an adaptive trait. Think about mosquitoes flying into bug lights. That's not adaptive. Because you fly into something and electrocutes you and you die. Right? That's an adaptive expression of an adaptive trait. The adaptive part of it is that's when they all meet together, they mate. They fly towards light. Right? A lot of, when you look at evolutionary psychology with humans, a lot of human um, disorders are thought of this way. It may be the case, in fact, here's an example of depression, maybe a maladaptive expression of an adaptive trait. How the hell could depression be adaptive? Okay, what triggers depression typically? Something really bad, right? When, when you lose a family member, you're sad, you cry, you're emotionally numb for a few weeks, right? Anybody's experienced that, you know what that's like. You're, you're, it's, it's horrible. Then you get off to it. If it lasts more than six or eight weeks, six weeks in the DSM, we call it depression. Is it six weeks? I haven't taken any clinical stuff since 1987. And I think it was a DSM-3 back then. Is it six weeks or six months? Six weeks? Okay, I thought so too. Okay. So I know when my father died, I was pretty screwed up for about three weeks. And then it was like, well, you know, I'm still here. I guess I should go to work and such. You like, yeah. If I was still upset about it, and I mean upset, I'm still upset about it every day. But if I was upset about it to the point where I couldn't do anything, we'd call that depression. Right? Okay. So, 
Now think back to 200,000 years ago. Something bad happens to you. Something bad. I don't know what it is, but it's something. You withdraw. I mean, like, social, emotional, etc. That's actually probably a good idea. Because it's possible that your behavior or the situation you were in led to the bad thing happening, perhaps the death of a child or a loved one. I'm not blaming depressed people. Again, please be clear. I'm blaming depressed cavemen. So if you withdraw for a few weeks, it's probably a good idea. It's why, you know, it may be the case that something really bad's happening and you shouldn't move around a whole lot, shouldn't behave a whole lot because not a lot of calories coming in right now. Maybe that's why Lothar of the Hill people die. That's actually conceivably adaptive, isn't it? Now, if you're like that for six months, that's maladaptive. That's a maladaptive expression of an adaptive trait. Again, in evolutionary psychology, people have a theory of autism like this, which is focus is good. Having too much focus might not be so good. In fact, you focus so much on one thing that you can't focus on anything else. Right? Which is a lot of times what autistic people like. Or schizophrenic people, whatever. So they can be maladaptive expressions of adaptive effect. Okay. Questions? Okay. The trait may also be what's called an exaptation. What the hell is an exaptation? Well, an exaptation is when a trait is an adaptation for one thing and it's been co-opted by evolution to do something else. The classic example here are feathers. We talked about it the other day. We saw it in the video. And that's the feathers probably evolved to keep the young dinosaurs warm. Thermal regulation. But then it turned out they were really useful for flying. Okay? So maybe you look at the feathers and go, boy, those are perfect for flying. They are. That's called dumb luck, because they probably showed up to keep little baby dinosaurs warm. That's an exaptation. There's a lot of times where you look at traits, and this is something that, in fact, if you do any sort of human evolutionary work, you've got to really be careful about looking at something and saying, that's an adaptation, it must be an adaptation. Because it exists, it must be an adaptation. You simply cannot say that. That's a, a, a term that Stephen Jay Gould came up with, which um, later on I'll criticize Stephen Jay Gould, but um, I've also got a lot of respect for the guy. He, he did a lot of great work. Okay. How are we going to measure fitness? Because if we're going to find a fit, we're going to measure, measure fitness. Um, we can get direct measures sometimes. <coughs> Gamete production, so you know, sex cells. Um, we can look at offspring survival. Okay. That's also a direct measure of fitness. Rate of copulation, that's a direct measure of fitness. Fertilized egg production, these are all things clearly young are being made, and that's what fitness is about. Right? 
actually just offspring production. Look at how many young. And offspring independence. Because, you know, the real definition of fitness is member of offspring and making the adult breeding population. So that, in fact, the final one is literally almost exactly there. But any of those are going to be clearly very highly correlated with it. We can pretty much call those direct measures of fitness. Sometimes it's hard to get those. You you probably guess. So we use indirect measures. Like improved locomotion. Can we move around better? No? Improved access to food. Improved survival chances. See, living isn't fitness, but the longer you live, the more likely you are to produce young. The better you move around, the more likely you are to produce young. The more you find food, the more likely you are to produce young. Improved access to territories. Better territories. And these are just things I just picked off the top of my head. There's a whole bunch of other ones you can use. But you see how all those things are very highly correlated with things. Right? Make sense? There's a lot of ways we can go. Questions so far? Alright. Here's an example. Let's look at mobbing behavior in gulls. Now, when gulls are, 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 uh, when they've mated or when they're mating, they tend to do this in colonies. Um, And when you get near the colony, you get attacked. You being any animal, though you may have experienced this as a given, though most of us haven't really been around gull colonies. Have you ever been around gull colonies? They swoop down on you, they actually hit you as they're swooping, and they shit on you. That's the dive bombing. It's a nice way of saying it. They poop. Excrement is a weird thing. It's both poop and pee. So if you ever get it, if you're out east, typically out east, I guess also out west, but I, I guess I lived out east, that's why I think about that. And if you're on like a, like a little shoreway, short, uh, it's rocky a little bit, and a little bit of beach, and you see a lot of birds, and it's May, and you think, I'm going to look at the birds and think again. Okay? Don't. I have a colleague uh, back at Memorial, uh, the main campus of St. John's, and Soria. She's got a field site on this little island off St. John's, and you basically can't go. I mean, you can, they do go study stuff, but I mean, they, they, they put gear on. They study herring goats. It seems a pretty good guess that this behavior is an adaptation for defense of the young. It's a good guess. The hell else could it be? I mean, it sounds good, but does the mobbing itself actually increase fitness? That's the question we have to ask. If it does, we can call it an adaptation. 
It doesn't, well, it, it is a meditation. So that's the question we have to ask. <laughs> so, the Malvin Dolls is my flock of seagulls uh, tribute band back days. Nothing? Um, Okay, so if mobbing is indeed an adaptation, then the degree of success experienced by mobbing gulls in protecting their eggs should be proportional to the degree uh, to which predators are mobbed. Right? It should just be, well, it may be one-to-one, but there should be, it should be a proportional relationship. Right? That, that's, that just follows, doesn't it? Does that make sense? Okay. So, again, they're all Dutch. All ethologists are Dutch, or so it seems. Kuh! I mean, they're still using it. Nobody here is Dutch and offending them. Okay, this is a pretty, this is pretty clever. It's back in 1964. It's pretty clever. It's classic. Place 10 eggs every 10 meters on a line leading from the inside and the outside of the column. I'm pretty sure Kuyuk had a graduate student do this because they couldn't could have been crapped on a lot. They would have got crouped all over it. <laughs> okay. So you got 100 meters, obviously, right? We start at the very middle of a colony and we start placing gull eggs there. And we 10 more meters, so there's about the gen and then keep going all the way up to, I don't know, where the Xinhua building was. Maybe we'll have it on Cool. And the ones outside the colony were more likely to have been taken. Okay. Well, that kind of follows. This is a field experiment, right? Like so many ecological experiments are. So you just watch and come back the next day and see what, what eggs are going. Probably crows, things like this, are, are, are going and taking. Uh, could be little mammals as well, going and taking the eggs and eating them. Well, it seems then that the further away they are from the center of the colony, the more likely they are to be taken, and we can also make a pretty good guess that the further away you are from the colony, the less likely you are to be mobbed. That sounds like that nice proportional relationship. So as we can see here, these D and E are inside the colony, A and B are outside the colony, C is right at the border of the colony. Okay, so... This is the probability that the crow is subject to an attack. And it's a crow going in. So she's looking at it. I think Kruk is cute. I have this feeling. You can see more likely to be attacked as they go in and less likely to get an egg. Perfect. Looking good. Kiddink. That's my name is Kiddink. It's weird. It's funny how some countries get good at something academically. It's true, though. I mean, Canadians are really good at cognitive psychology. There's tons of really good Canadian cognitive psychologists. Really things. That's great. Uh, and they'll tell me. These are fake, and they're Canadian. Dutch people, for some reason, all went into mythology. Weird. The graph makes sense. Pretty straightforward, right? Okay. Now, barn swallows also mob. Okay? 
It's just a different kind of bird. They're not gulls at all. They're very distant. I mean, when they're both birds, but they're pretty distantly related. Barn swallows are a kind of uh, songbird. Okay. This could be self-defense. It could actually be um, a mating advertisement. Right? It could be the males mobbing, going, hey ladies, look at how tough I am. I will mob crows. Mobbing crows, that was my counting crows cover band. I'll stop doing that scene. No, I'll never stop. I can't stop it. It's horrible. The best one I ever heard was a friend of mine once said that Mesolimbic Dopamine System was the name of the Simple Minds cover band. I don't know why, but that was so funny. This could be an alternative parental care. Instead of going and caring for the young, I'll let them take care of themselves. I'll just keep the bad guys away. Right? It's the Homer Simpson method of child rearing, right? Kids are great. Well, with the internet, they pretty much raise themselves, and you can teach them to hate what you hate. So let them take care of themselves. I'll just keep the bad guys away. Okay. Now, shields, that does not seem to me like a touch thing. But it's probably like, you know, fan shields or something, really. Or shields. Place the stuffed owl, this is great. A lot of mythology experiments use these, like, stuffed animals. But it's not like a nice one you'd win in a fair. This is a real owl that's been stuffed. They are calling at barn swallows and took note of who mobbed the stuffed animal. And if we look at who mobs, we can, we can actually distinguish these different hypotheses. Right? So this is what Shields found. This is pretty cool. So, first of all, we have the percentage of the population of unmated adults which are called losers. And then we got adults before incubation. These are, these are adults that have made it, but they weren't incubating young. This is during the experiment, okay? Um, adults during incubation, 14%. Adults with young, a little over half of the population was actually had young already. And of course, finally, we got basic juveniles, which are a year old. These are basically, in essence, they're, they're teenage birds. Okay? Now, we should expect some difference between the percentage of the population and the percentage of active moggers. Okay, 6 and 2, unmated, yeah, it's roughly the same. 9 and 11, almost exactly the same. 14 and 10, almost exactly the same. Juveniles don't mob at all. Who does the mobbing? Adults with young. This tells us something. This tells us that it has something to do with protecting your young. Right? How the heck did she keep track of that? Uh, probably with a banded colony. So you were calling in the uh, identification um, link uh, A lot of times bird field stations have these um, banded colonies. There's Queens University has one, for example, Chickens, where you can go and you know what every bird they have a little, these little link bands on, and they're all, so it'd be like you know, red, green, 
Yellow blue means that's bird 17. We know she was hatched at this time. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like you're really. It's, 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 oh, yeah, this is hard work. I mean, this is the field work's neat. Um, but it, when you think about field studies and even human psychology, they're hard enough. When you think about it doing something where. Like, I can tell the difference, even me with my vision, between all of you guys. With little birds that all look to us pretty much the same, they all look like. Racism. Um, <laughs> birdism. But to us, that's hard. And then, so what we have to do is you have to have these leg bands on these animals. Or now sometimes you'll see um, with uh, herds of like caribou and that, they'll have radio frequency trackers on them. And then you just, you can, now, nowadays you can actually track them using GPS, which is quite a bit cooler. Uh, when I was in Newfoundland, we had submitted a research proposal to find out about salmon navigation, because no one knew really how it worked. So we were going to catch uh, all these salmon and take the fry and, and put radio, radio frequency identifiers on all of them and then track them with a satellite. It was, it was a $9 million budget. We didn't get the money, unfortunately. We had a satellite, I'm a book. I was going to be on a Coast Guard vessel. <laughs> yeah. Sort of glad I didn't get that money. I don't think I wanted to be on the Coast Guard vessel. Somebody wrote me in, come on, Dave, you can be the principal investigator. I don't know anything about salmon. <laughs> I don't know anything about water. I don't like, I don't want to go in a helicopter. You know a lot about memory. Yeah, small distances, not navigation like that. Come on! Okay. <laughs> but kind of cool, though. $9 million or $1 million budget. So yeah, it's typically just banning. I have to go back and read that paper again. But I, I'm almost certain that you're banning the population. All right. So we've already talked about the comparative method we talked about the sort of historical pathway stuff. Um, we can also look... We can also use the comparative method as a way of answering something adaptation. So that'll also help us here. It's not to give us the whole answer, but if we've got, um, we would expect that birds that are cliff nesters would not mock, while those that were brown nesters did. If you're up on a cliff, you don't get attacked. Right? You've got to understand, these mob, these birds that mob, say barn swallows and, and like herring gulls and animals like this, they don't mob on, they don't nest on cliffs, they nest in great big open colonies. They're on the ground. So if we have distantly related species, but they both mob and they're both out in the open, we can then start to say, well, that looks like an adaptation, you know, evolution solving the problem the same way at the time. So this should happen regardless of relatedness. 
And we can see here we have colonial nesting swallows, okay, and we have brown nesting gulls. And we don't see any, and, these, and then we have these two that are that both, um, these don't mob here, the kidawake and the rough-ringed uh, swallow. They uh, aren't colonial. They nest individually uh, up in high up places, trees, or up in uh, cliffs, things like that. And over here we've got colonial nesting swallows, and we've got ground nesting gulls. And they all mob. This is a case of what is called convergent evolution. Very distantly related species that come up with the same solution evolutionarily to the same problem. And you've got to understand the common ancestor of barn swallows and herring gulls was a very long time ago. It was like Archaeopteryx, okay? So. This is a very good solution to that problem. When we look at the evolution of, of, of eyesight, which has been developed independently about, I think it's over 100 times, but it always works the same way. Right? Light hits, light sensitive, pigments, which send a signal to a nervous system. How the hell else are you going to see? Right? And there's a few ways it's worked. One of them is by having eyes that move around like we do and a lot of other species. The other one is like they have a whole bunch of little tiny eyes all together, compound eyes, that a lot of bugs have. Right? That's convergent evolution. There's only so many ways to solve the problem of how do you detect light. even the case that some colonial mammals will mob. There are squirrels that nest in colonies. And then when a predator comes by, they all attack. Now they don't poop on them because they have to jump up in the air and take a crap, so that's not going to work. But they rush them, they attack. This is a solution if you are a colonial nesting species to the problem of predation of your young. And remember, it's predation of your young, it's not predation of your eggs. Remember, Kuli thought it was predation of the eggs, but S.H.I.E.L.D. showed, in fact, it wasn't eggs, it was actually having young. That's who does the model. And remember, nature is selfish. So the convergent part here is that we get similar behavior. Okay? The divergent part is when that uh, we get divergent evolution when a species needn't solve a certain problem, so it goes off in a different direction. So convergent evolution is when two unrelated species solve uh, a problem the same way and get this roughly the same adaptation. Divergent evolution is when a closely related species can solve different kinds of problems involve different mechanisms. 
Zuletzt immer. Questions so far? I think it's pretty cool. Now, one of the ways we can look at fitness consequences is by the use of something called optimality models. So, when does it make sense to use a particular strategy? Or, so if you have the strategy available right now, or when does it make sense to evolve a particular strategy? That's what the kind of question we can ask with this model. Look at the costs and benefits to use of what are called optimality models. Okay. So again, we're looking at costs and benefits here, but we're going to do it a little more precisely. I'm not saying the work that those other people did was, was imprecise. I'm saying now we're going to make precise mathematical predictions. <clears throat> now we might have what are called, as it says here, you might model some of the predators some of the time. In other words, you might not always model. You have the mobbing strategy available to you. Right? You're Aaron Gall. But you as an individual might be a cautious mobber. In other words, you don't mob that off. You let others mob for you. You don't mob until they get very close. Right? Or you might be a daring mobber. Anytime anybody shows up, you just go out there. I'll take that hill, sir. Right? You look at the Congressional Medal of Honor, Victoria Cross, or the equivalent, at least, for Aaron Gall. I don't think they get that else. This top model here looks at only costs and benefits. So we have, this is the units of fitness, and again, we're just, this is all theoretical. Um, and this is the difference between a model and a predator in meters. This is the cost of action. If you're very close, there's a lot of cost. Because between mobber and predator, you're probably going to get into some sort of altercation. The further away, the less likely anything bad's going to happen to you. At least, in, and also in fitness consequences, because if they're very close, that means they're also close to your yard. Right? So that's what the bottom curve is. It's in cost. The benefits of action, unlike this, where we have a sort of hyperbolic function, is just a negatively sloped linear function. There's big benefit when they're close and big cost. There's small benefit and small cost when they're far. The benefits really outweigh the cost mostly by about here. The biggest distance between costs and benefits is when we get in this model about a meter and a half away. And that's a daring mobber, but a cautious mobber, you think of this being cautious actually has fewer benefits than being daring if the world actually worked like that. So what you can do is you can 
make a prediction that you're going to get more daring mobbers than cautious mobbers. And if that was the case, you would say, fine, the top model is correct. I don't know what the parameters are to plug into it. I don't actually know what numbers to put in, but I should see more daring mobbers than cautious mobbers because it actually increases, it's, it's got more of a fitness benefit. Assuming these, so what it's saying is, if these functions are correct, just the shape of them, then you should expect more daring mobbers than cautious mobbers, right? The bottom model looks at the percentage of cautious and daring mobbers, and that you can see that they're dependent on each other. If there's a lot of cautious, it's good to be daring. If there's a lot of daring, it's good to be cautious. Look, if everyone's going to go out and fight, I'll stay back here, thanks. If, every, if all you guys are just going to say, no, it's not, I don't want to bother the crow, well, somebody's got to do something, so I'll go do something. We should get a place where the two lines cross. See that? Yeah, it's more beneficial, like, closer to the... Oh, just because of the... Oh, how come it's more beneficial? Yeah, is it better to kill them the closer they're at? Because you're more likely to actually get them. That's, I think that's the, that's the reasoning of the model. And that's the kind of thing that you do when you're building the model. You have to actually go through all these possibilities in your head and say, now how would this look? Would it be a straight line? Would it be a hyperbolic function? Could it be a sine function? Uh, could it be a parabola? And you have to sort of go through all this stuff in your head first. You can also look at a little data, but typically, You'll do a little bit of that. Typically, people that do this kind of modeling, and if you take the behavioral ecology course with Dr. Emery next term, uh, a lot of it's about modeling. And you look at this and you say, okay, how do you think the world works? Now, what happens sometimes is you actually plot stuff up and say, oh, I like it to occur like that. Other times, a lot of people literally just sit down in a chair and think. Uh, and they know some math. Right. The nice thing is, you can test stuff with these models. See, and we'll talk more about optimality models when we talk about foraging, because foraging, like how to find food, how to, what kind of food should I eat, what, kind of, what should I stop eating, should I go to a different place to find food, all those things. Those are all uh, different kinds of questions, and they're answered with optimality models. This is a very brief introduction to the idea. <clears throat> Some criticisms of optimality models. The biggest critic was Stephen Jay Gould of, sorry, of, of uh, adaptation. Uh, he is, however, we should point out, the only paleontologist ever will appear on The Simpsons. Let me see if I can find his. I think I should have pulled that up before, but I'll see if I can find this here. We'll find a picture of Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, there he is. Okay. And you can see him on the Simpsons there in the middle. <clears throat> He's the only paleontologist who can the Simpsons, so we got to give him some credit. That's when Lisa found the angel. Remember that? Yeah. And then for the, for, the, for the mall. That's right. And he, he, she took it to him and to test it, and he didn't test it. Tried to die a few years ago cancer. I was thinking genetic cancer, which is a pretty nasty one. That is not Stephen Jay Gould. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, the trait, this, these are the points that Gould's made. He's usually <clears throat> talking about people doing human evolutionary psychology, which he, he had a real problem. Okay? He didn't like it at all. Now, he said the trait may be maladaptive now, but it would have been adaptive then. Uh huh? The trait may be a maladaptive byproduct of a previously adaptive or presently adaptive trait. Uh huh. Agreed. We discussed these things in the EA class today. But you can't think everything's an adaptation, because everything isn't. And this is one of the dangers, and I'll, as much as I think Gould really acted like a twit here, but seriously, I think he blew this. Uh, that's my opinion. No one talks about me, and I'm never going to be on The Simpsons. But I think he kind of blew his criticisms here because the people knew this. It wasn't so much to me a criticism as it seems to me something that people that studied adaptation were, were well aware of. This is why you get these very careful things saying, okay, is mobbing and dolls an adaptation for protecting your young or your eggs? Or is it an adaptation at all? His concern was political. Um, he liked Marx and he liked baseball, so I call him a baseball loving cop. <clears throat> So, um, the trait itself may have occurred in the past, or I'm sorry, may not have occurred even in the past, but some crazy conditions nowadays may show up. So we can talk about, oh, well, let's pick something that goes from the human age, because this was where his criticism were coming from. Um, and he said, look, what about intelligence testing? Um, were people ever solving doing backwards digit span, which is something in, you know, in the way in the uh, in the weights, right? Were people ever doing backwards digit span back in the savannah of Africa? No. True enough. Um, we do it today, and we judge people's intelligence by. <coughs> mm-hmm. And see, to, to me, that's all true. But the point is, it also correlates with problem solving ability, etc., which, of course, we needed back on the savannah. The trait itself will always be less than perfect because it's constrained by past evolutionary events. And that's what something else he said that you can't just say everything works fine now. It's always what, what evolution, evolution only works with what it has in front of it. I've said before, it would be certainly great if I could just imagine food and it would appear, but it's unlikely that's going to happen. I've not evolved that way with that kind of skill to manipulate energy and matter. Now, the assumption of adaptation is, in, is the traits are adapted, but we test the prediction. We test it. So, I think Gould's issue here was, first of all, it was a lot of human stuff. A lot of it was from him criticizing a book called The Bell Curve, which really deserved criticism. It was shot in science. <clears throat> the Bell Curve was a book that, that, that said that, uh, well, you know, intelligence is not a bell shape. 
And that book says that um, A, intelligence is heritable. B, that means it's genetic. C, that means it's unchangeable. D, we shouldn't give money to poor people. Because they're all, they're all stupid. And we can't change the stupid because it's a genetic. I hope you all realize all the stupid points that are just being made there. The problem is this book was not written by a proper evolutionary psychologist. It was written by uh, Hernstein, who actually was a great animal learning guy. And a political scientist who didn't know what he was doing. Um, it got a lot of press about 20 years ago, um, which is probably what they wanted, which is fine. People want their ideas out there. The downside, of course, is that it made, as a lot of things that happen to human evolutionary psychology, the lunatic fringe makes it look like we're all nut jobs. Preaching eugenics and putting people in camps. I, mean, I don't know anybody like that. So, <clears throat> Gould was criticizing this, what he called rabbit adaptationism in a book called The Mismeasure of Man, which, and he was right on that. But people just studying adaptation in human or non human animals, um, the vast majority of us were like, what? <laughs> no, we never said that, dude. <laughs> go back to your. Go, you go over back to your fossils. We, we had nothing to say about that. So I don't know the stuff he was reading. I think he was reading one book. He wasn't reading the other stuff, the vast majority of the literature, which was out there testing if things were adaptations. That's my guess. Points to be correct, this contestable prove wrong. As I said, there you should have paid more attention in your philosophy of science class. <laughs> science is an essentialist, right? It's not about the truth. It's about testing hypotheses. So I, I, I got very mad about that book because, well, first of all, I was more mad about the bell curve because it was bullshit, and then I get mad about the criticism because I figured Gould, you know, not a dumb guy. I knew his stuff, but he was stepping outside, and this happens so often with scientists. I get a PhD in this. Well, that means I'm qualified over here too. No, it doesn't. Right? And he did some great stuff. He came up with the idea of punctuated equilibrium, the idea that evolution isn't slow. That it, it goes very slow, hardly at all, that it goes like that, and then it moves like, very quickly. That's, that's cool. That's wonderful stuff. We pretty much accept that as being true now. Look at the fossil record in that. And then I think he made a bit of an idiot of himself. That's my opinion. I mean, other people may disagree with me. Um, oh yeah, was, was he criticizing the bell curve? Yes. Did deserve criticism? Hell yes. It was a piece of shit. It was up there with Philip Rushton's work, which I'm not a fan of either, from Western, who um, went on his big kick about Asian people are smarter than white people are smarter than black people. And black people are more criminal than white people are more criminal than Asian people. And it also now related to the size of their penises. And you think I'm kidding, don't you? <laughs> The weird thing is, I can imagine. I just don't, I think Phil, Phil Rushton was confused as well. I mean, I kind of knew him as a prophet Western. He wasn't a bad guy, I didn't see him. Just a bit nuts. Playing with tools you don't know how to play with. Is what, you know. Okay, conclusions about this stuff. Then. First of all, don't be a rabbit adaptationist. I don't want you looking at any behavior and saying that it must be an adaptation. So you don't say, oh, uh, I don't know what the hell it could be. That someone is a 
Oh, okay. A sense of humor. Let's think about that in, in, in human. Because usually it's about humans you think about this, but somebody's not funny. You won't think, oh, well, he must have funny genes, and that's because that really allows you to be successful to get mates because chicks dig funny guys. That may be true, but you can't just say it's an adaptation. It doesn't work that way. So everything isn't. In fact, a lot of stuff you see probably isn't an adaptation. In any end. But don't fall for the naturalistic fallacy either, which is, I think, part of what, what, what Gould was doing when he said that when someone says it's an adaptation, we're saying it's correct, and that's not true. So if it is an adaptation for males to be more aggressive than females and humans, and in a lot of other animals. I'm sure it is. To get better territories, to protect young, to get access to females more than anything. Should I be aggressive? Yeah, sometimes. Is it always right? No. In humans, uh, females traditionally do childcare. Right? Cross-culturally, pretty true. Okay? Should females then just stay home and take care of babies? You might even say it's natural. But just because it's natural doesn't make it right. I'm pretty sure warfare is natural. I don't think it's a good idea, usually. You know, unless Hitler shows up. But it's natural. You can say it's right. You know what else is natural? Pooping on the floor. We don't do that. If something's natural, it doesn't make it right or wrong. It just is. It's all about reproductive success. Yeah, so we really need this approach to test why something evolved. So that's the importance of this. Don't worry so much about is something an adaptation or not, and looking at all behavior and saying that's an adaptation. Think about how could that have actually increased fitness? And does it still? And it may not anymore, but it may have for so long that it's still here. We look at, again, let's look at humans, we look at promiscuity. Males are more promiscuous than females. Right? Males have more sex partners than females. We typically actually don't think that's a good thing. And actually, I can see how it could increase fitness. For males, what's the parental investment? Have to be. What's it have to be? 45 seconds of light work. Right? That's what it had, that's all you have to do to father a child. You know? That's, that's how long it takes, right? 45 seconds? Um, <laughs> for females, let's see. It's probably a good three, four years. At least. Right? So males, what's a good strategy for a male? Screw anything you lose. Right? What's a good strategy for a female? Be exceedingly choosy. Because you better make sure it's a good one because, you know, uh, that's your chance for a little while. Okay. Those are good strategies. They work. Do I think it's sensible for men to act like that? No, I think it's immoral, actually. It's stupid. Wrong and all that. It's not right. It's actually natural. I don't care. It actually increases fitness. I don't care. So don't fall for the naturalistic fallacy. Just because something is natural doesn't make it right or wrong. It just is. And of course, this stuff's all intertwined with the stuff on um, 
the historical pathway of stuff we talked about last week. So if you put the two together, you can get a pretty good idea of the evolution of some traits, some behavior. Questions? Please. How about the criticism of the other? Yes. Yeah, I mean, Gould was saying that something may not be an adaptation because the trait isn't... He was telling the adaptation is this, okay? That the trait itself isn't perfectly suited to solve some problem. And I think that's a weak... I mean, to me, yeah, and? I mean, that's not really a criticism to me. Gould thought it was. If he was here, he's dead. But if he was here, we could ask him. He's here, I'd email him. But he's dead. So we can't really know. We can, we can look at the mismeasure of man. He, he uses this criticism of, well, when we look at adaptation, is something that adaptation, we say, is it perfectly suited to solve something? In fact, that's not what we say. I think he misunderstood, because he had a bad source in front of him. He also had a political agenda. He didn't like um, the idea. Uh, he had a very... He didn't like evolutionary psychology politically, let's just say that, which is not the right reason to like or dislike something in science. But that was, I think that was part of his reason. And part of it was, there was crap out there, please. The bell curve is a piece of crap. It's not, it's horrible. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Really? Nothing? Okay, remember again, the take home message, everybody's Dutch. All right, on that note, we'll uh, talk again on uh, Wednesday. Thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. 
Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.